Why don't you stand with me as we read from God's word? Matthew chapter 12, once again, um, we're grateful that y'all came here to worship the Lord with us today. We're glad to have you here, um, especially grateful that you came on this day. We want to remind you more than anything, um, we serve a God that desires to invite us to be a part of his family. He confronts not to condemn us. He confronts us to invite us to be close. And I hope that'll be increasingly uh, more clear as we look at him in the pages of scripture. We're going to go through all of Matthew chapter 12 today, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to start off with uh, Matthew 12, 1 to 14. It's on page 536 in the uh, pew Bibles that are right there in front of you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. So uh, feel free to take that with you. So I'll start here, Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. And it says this. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick up and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Isn't that a miserable existence to look for what people are doing wrong and call them out on it? He said, Haven't you read what David did? When he and those who were with him were hungry, how he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for him and for those uh, with him to eat, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the innocent for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. There he saw a man who had a shriveled hand and in order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He replied, who among you, if he has a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep. So it's lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was restored as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us the right lenses to see and to hear from you, Father. Help us to hear you rightly. Help us not to come to a conclusion about you before we've rightly comprehended who you are, God. Give us grace. You've promised to give sight to the blind, and spiritually our hearts are blind, and we need you to restore our sight. Would you do so and help us to walk out of here glad? rejoicing, restful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take a seat? The honeymoon doesn't last forever. Conflict comes. Uh, it will find you. Conflict's uh, not always a bad thing. Conflict's not a bad word. Sometimes folks 
think that it's bad because it's hard, uh, but that's not the case at all. Uh, You really don't know somebody for real, for real, until you've been in a conflict with them. So I had suspicions that Chandra was the one for me, uh, but I really didn't know for sure um, until we got into this big conflict. And the conflict was resolved. And on the other side of the conflict, seeing how she dealt with it, how we dealt with it, uh, I felt like I knew her better, and I was convinced that she was the one. Uh, Me and her are on good terms right now, so I'm not going to tell you about how I was right in the conflict and she was wrong. That's another sermon for another day. But conflict helps you to know somebody. What conflict does, conflict is a great clarifier. It helps you to know what somebody's about, what they really care about, right? So you don't start or entertain fights with something about somebody unless it's something that you really care about, right? So if you're going to come up to me and argue about um, which is better, right, kale or collard greens or how to cook them, if you cook them with turkey, ham, I'm not going to fight with you because I really don't care about that. You start to talk to me about the Houston Rockets, and then you'll see me come alive because you're attacking something that I love, something that I care about. So what conflict does is when it comes out, you start to see what somebody loves, what drives them. What is it that makes them stand up? What is it that makes it that when they stand up, they won't back down? I bring all of this up. Um, especially as we're getting ready to come into the text for the day, uh, just to remind us, and I know we say this time and time again, but we as people are forgetful sometimes when we come to the scripture or when we come to the Bible or when we come to a service on Sunday, we think the goal is that I would hear something about me. And I want you to know you hearing something about you is not ultimately what you need. It's not what's going to change you. What changes us is you and I hearing something about Jesus. And we have to be reminded that the Bible is not just a book about the teachings of Christ. It's not just about an ideology. It's about God himself calling us into relationship with him. God wants us to know him. So the pages of scripture, especially the gospel of Matthew, the reason why we've entitled this series Painting Jesus is because what we're trying to do from Easter 2019 to Easter 2020 is spend as many Sundays as we can in the Gospel of Matthew to make sure that when we say the name Jesus, the right picture or the same picture comes into everybody's mind. And so here in Matthew 12, we get to this point in the Gospel where if you had to write one word to describe Matthew chapter 12, the one word that you're going to write at the top of that chapter is conflict. Thus far, the gospel has been good. Jesus has come on the scene. There's been celebration. He's been healing folks. He's been teaching. People have been astonished and amazed. And then we get to Matthew 12, and this whole story is one about conflict. And I want you to hear this. Look, what's more important than the fact that Jesus gets into conflict is who he gets into conflict with. 
For people that are unfamiliar with the Bible or Christianity, when they hear about a holy and a perfect God that comes to earth in the form of a man, and if this God was going to get in a conflict with somebody, who do you think he would get into the most conflict with? We would think he'd get into the most conflict with the most immoral, irreligious people that are just out there wilding. And the crazy thing that you see is that Jesus doesn't get into a bunch of conflict with those guys. Do you know who he spends most of his time in conflict with? Religious people. Church folk. Not just those that would come into church on a Sunday, but people that would be looked to as models, examples, teachers. People that you and I would look and say, man, if anybody's going to tell us how to get close to God, how to relate rightly to him, we would look at those guys, and Jesus spends most of his time in conflict with them. Sometimes the Pharisees get a bad rap, right? Because we look at them and we just think that they are these evil people. But what you find out as you read is people that were Pharisees, at the end of the day, were people that were well-meaning. They spent their lives combing over the scripture, studying it, because they knew that there was a connection between how I relate to God's law and how I experience God's love. The problem was they were working really, really hard, but expecting little. So what you had was a group of folks that know, hey, if we break God's law, God's not going to be pleased with us. So what they did was they ended up building this fence around God's law. So if they said, hey, it's a sin to, to do this, well, what they would do is they would add all these laws and put up a no trespassing sign and assume, hey, if we don't even let people get close then they won't break God's law. And their whole goal was how do we live, how do we work, how do we keep God's law in a way where God doesn't get mad at us? Well, Jesus comes on the scene and they've set up this nice little fence around God's law, no trespassing sign. And Jesus comes on the scene and unlocks the gate and is walking all on the grass. And what he's saying is, No, listen, he's coming so that you and I would see that the goal of Christianity is not just not to make God mad. He's trying to bring us up to the front doorstep and says, God has an open door policy. Come on in. Well, they don't like that. And so we see that this conflict begins. Here's what I love about Jesus, too. Um, When you get into a conflict with somebody, the worst people to get into a conflict with are people that are stubborn, that won't compromise, that you say, we're fighting, meet me halfway. Uh, Jesus is stubborn. He will not compromise. He won't meet you halfway. Listen. Stubbornness is not a bad thing. Stubbornness is only a bad thing if it's holding hands with foolishness. 
If stubbornness is in a relationship with wisdom, it's a very good thing. Uh, You want your surgeon to be stubborn. You would not want a surgeon who's in the room with a mother saying, don't cut my baby, to look at her and say, well, I'm going to meet you halfway. You want him to sympathize, but to say, man, he's going to die unless I cut him. Jesus is not going to meet anybody halfway. And that's what makes it so hard to be in relationship with him. He's constantly going to confront, confront, confront. And the only way that you can come out on the other side of the confrontation unscathed is to say, you're right. Matthew chapter 12, starting here in verse 1. I just want to show you how this plays out. Uh, 12 verse 1 starts off and it says this. At that time, here's an important thing we talk about all the time. As you're reading the Bible, when Matthew was writing this, uh, his publisher didn't tell him, hey, Matthew, can you break this up into 28 chapters so people have a way to stop? As Matthew's starting to write this, he writes it as one long letter. The chapters and the verses were put there later so that it would be easy for us to reference in a setting like this. Matthew 12, 1 says, at that time. So what we would do is we would say, all right, at that time, what is that time? Matthew 12 comes after Matthew 11. At the end of Matthew 11, Jesus ends off and says this, look, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke up upon me and learn from me. My load is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, y'all come to me and I'll give you rest. And then Matthew comes up in Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on what day? The Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is a day of what? Rest. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, see, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Who looks restful here? Jesus and the 12 or the religious leaders who are so anxious that they're just looking for somebody to correct. And what we see here, what the Lord Jesus is going to do en route to getting in this conflict, what he's going to do is he's going to give you and I a a map key for how we look at God's instructions. All right, have you ever pulled out a, a map and in the bottom corner there's a thing called a map key? What that map key does is it tells you which way is north, south, east, and west, uh, A triangle means a mountain and all of that stuff. A map key helps you make sense of the instructions. It gives you the intention behind what was written. Without a map key, you're never going to use the map in the right way. It's the same way when it comes to God's laws, God's instructions. If you don't know why he wrote it, You're never going to use it the right way. And that's what we have here. Look at what these guys do with God's law and with God's word. In verse 2, they come to Christ and his 12 and say, see, y'all are breaking the law. Drop down with with me to verse 9 and 10. Moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. There he saw a man 
who had a shriveled hand. And in order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? What you have are these religious leaders using God's word to condemn, to drive down on Christ. You know, it's been said, um, uh, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem becomes a nail. They saw God's word as this one, this hard, exacting thing. So they're trying to drive down on Christ. They're concerned about the letter of the law, trying to keep this fence around it. But here's what Christ does. Look here at verse 3. He said to them, haven't you read? Uh, this is a slight jab because all these guys did was read. So he says, yo, yo haven't Haven't y'all read? And he goes on and says this, what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry, how he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, that is our mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. What he says is this. Yo, if you go back and read, David did what I did, but David was the exception to the rule because back then his people were on a mission. They were on God's mission and they had to eat So God let them do what is not lawful in order to take care of them. Christ is saying, I'm here with a greater mission. And so the 12 of us, we're going to come and we're going to do the same thing. Or he says this, look, everybody else, y'all's work week is Monday to Friday. I know the Sabbath day is supposed to be a day of rest. But what he's saying is somebody's got to light the candles in the temple. Somebody's got to work. Those are the priests that work on that day. Is God condemning the priest? Jesus is saying, no, I'm greater. So what he's trying to do is say, no, listen, y'all are focused about the letter of the law, but you've, you've missed the intent. You've missed the fact that condemnation is not the map key. Mercy is the map key. That's what he says there in Verse 7, y'all don't know what it means when he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Look, the Pharisees were well-meaning. The problem was they had the wrong meaning. Okay? Here's a pro tip. Uh, Everybody that can quote scripture doesn't know scripture. Everybody that can tell you what it says doesn't know what it means. And Jesus is trying to come here to help us see what it means. There was this story years ago of this um, man who sent his mom a parrot for a birthday gift. Now, it wasn't just any parrot. Parrot cost them $10,000. Parrot could speak 20 different languages. The parrot could sing 40 different hymns. The parrot could carry on a conversation. Um, And the only instructions that he gave to his mom was, 
hey, mom, I got you this bird for your birthday. Enjoy the bird. He calls his mom. Yeah, he doesn't hear from her from a few days. So he calls his mom and he says, hey, mom, how are you enjoying the bird? And she says, um, it was delicious. What he said was, you know, there was something I wanted you to delight in, but you delighted in it in the wrong way by devouring it. He's saying, I wish you would have known what I meant by enjoy the bird. You used the instructions wrongly because you missed my intent. That's what Jesus is saying about this group here. Anybody that's going to use God's word to beat somebody over the head with God's word is using the word to devour or destroy when God meant for you and I to delight in this. And so what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to correct them, a group of folks that would enforce God's law without understanding the heart of God's law, that the heart of God's law is mercy. So here's what this looks like, a tangible example of what it looks like. You'll have people who know clearly what God's word says about murder, protecting the unborn in our world. And they'll spend their time using God's word to condemn abortion without ever considering adoption. I had a pastor friend that said this. He had a deacon that was in his church that organized an event for 11 pregnant teens that were in foster care. And what he did, he connected them to women in his church. They bought them a crib, a high chair, and diapers. Do you know what that is? That's somebody that understands God's instruction is about mercy. His intent is about mercy. And love, an invitation into family, not just condemnation. That's what Jesus is trying to get at here with these, with this group here. And it's so funny. Look here at verse ten. There he saw a man who had a shriveled hand, and in order to accuse him, they asked him, "Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath?" Hear what they are doing. They do not have the power to heal this man. And they are spending their time using this man as a test case to prove their rightness, ignoring him. And Jesus comes, and what he says is, man, y'all are degrading this man. Treating him with less dignity than than you would give your sheep if it fell down. The Sabbath, the, the, the goal of this rest is for you and I to be reminded of the fact that God is the one that brings restoration and Jesus, hear this, 
commands this man to do something that he couldn't do so that you and I know that as Jesus commands us to do the impossible, he gives us the ability to do that which we couldn't do. That's another sermon for another day. And he heals him. And you know what takes place at the end of the story? Jesus didn't even work to heal him. He actually just spoke. So he's innocent of the charge and the Pharisees on a rest day call a staff meeting uh, to determine how they're going to kill like they're working to destroy while Jesus is bringing life showing that look they are not on the same page intentions the true intentions of your heart are revealed in how you deal and relate to lawbreakers or people that break God's law? Are you holding people to God's laws without expressing God's love? One of the ways that you know that you do this is you spend more time theoretically talking about helping people than you actually do helping people. Um, it's funny, so for, for the past few years, every Tuesday, uh, me and a group of folks in the church, it's really wide open to anybody that wants to come next door if you're free from 9 a.m. until 12. We study the text that we're going to uh, preach here this, this next week, so we're all there studying, trying to make sense of what this means and what God does, um, and we get so lost in kind of what's right or wrong, what this means, and Lynn just chimes up and says, hey, uh, We're spending all this time trying to discover the meaning of this text. But what you see is that in all of our spending the time trying to discover this meaning, we overlooked the fact that while they were trying to have a conversation, Jesus actually steps in and helps this person. That he doesn't get lost in the midst of all the debate that goes on out there on the fact that there's somebody that's actually hurting that needs help. I pray that God would do the same thing to our church, those of us that are concerned about rightness and proclaiming justice, that we wouldn't spend so much time arguing with people that we would just put our hands to the plow and get to work. Verse 15, here's what Christ does. Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. So he knew that they were going to kill him. He backs off, but look here, and he healed them all. He warned them not to make them known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in him. What I love about verses 18 to 21 is this. The Pharisees deal with lawbreakers by trying to beat them over the head with God's word condemning them. Do you know what the Bible says about how Jesus deals with lawbreakers? First of all, the prophecy in 
Isaiah says that his aim, his mission, was to come into the world and set things right. Do you know what justice is to set things right? In a world full of injustice, justice says we have to get rid of all of the injustice. Verse 18, look look here, it says here, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. And it goes on and says, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. One of the things that you see is wherever in the Bible it talks about God's spirit being on something or someone, it precedes them setting right what was messed up. So God the Father is creating. That's his plan. God the Son dies, unifies the world, brings it back to God. Do you know what the Spirit does? Beautifies. So in Genesis 1, God creates the whole world. It says the world is formless and void. Uh, Alicia talked some of, about this last week. And then at the end of verse 2, it says this, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then the rest of chapter 1 is God making beauty out of chaos. That's what God does, beautifies. So Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I'm filled with that spirit to conquer injustice, to proclaim that God's going to set things right. But look at how he does it. This is a great, this is a great confrontation. All right, and I, I want y'all to track with me. I know it doesn't feel immediately applicable. I promise you, it's important. The world that we live in is broken. It is fractured. There is something really, really wrong with it that education is not going to fix, that your political party is not going to fix, that your economic system is not going to fix that being polite and kind is not going to fix. The world is broken at its core. God sends Jesus into the world to make things right. So it is this cosmic thing that Jesus is trying to do to reverse the course of human history. He's coming in power. And look at what it says. Verse 19, he won't argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. Verse 20, he will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. What does that mean? Back in this day, you would use these reeds to measure the straightness of something. A bruised reed was a reed that was broken, but it hung on by a thread. So it was still there, but it was useless to accomplish what you needed it for. A smoldering wick was a you know, piece of cloth that had burnt out, and all it does is produce smoke. It's useless to start a fire on its last leg. Worthless, vulnerable, ready to be thrown out. And this God that comes in power to set the world right, it's saying that he's so gentle that he won't break that bruised reed or put out that wick. Have you ever seen a baby 
try to interact with another baby. My daughter's two and a half years old. And when she tries to go around babies, it's terrifying. She has these heavy hands. And if she interacts with something fragile, she's going to break it. Have you ever seen church folk around baby Christians? It is terrifying. They have these heavy hands. And they come around people whose faith are really fragile. And they use God's word to beat people over the head and condemn them. And what this is saying is the God with the heaviest of hands is so gentle that the vulnerable, the cast out, those of you that are in here and your faith is hanging on by a thread. doesn't throw you out as useless. But it says, that mercy is for you. And he's going to carry you along until he accomplishes the task of confronting the injustice that exists in the world. And he's going to bring us to victory. That's, that's the picture of Jesus that's painted here in this Bible. So here's what that means for us. Those of us that think that we know a little something about what God wants and see the wrong that goes on in the world and all around us, in our homes, in our small groups, amongst our friends, uh, get to know God's heart before you start to hand out his advice. That as we come to what the scripture is saying and the way that we should live, we don't give out instructions in void void of God's intention. And when we start to hear God's intention, what we find out is that we don't make him more restrictive than he is. And we don't have people settle with a God whose goal is that he just doesn't want to be mad at them. We're able to bring them up to the front doorstep. And when people paint a picture of God that is not that... That's what gets Jesus mad. That's when he starts to get into conflict. So here's what takes place. They spoke all this stuff about him and what he does. They're planning to kill him. And Jesus just steps back and goes about his work. But here's what conflict is the great clarifier. Look here at verse 22. And verse 22 to 24 is really going to be a paradigm to how to understand this great conflict. And it says this, look, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. Jesus healed him so that the man could both speak and see. All the crowds were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Here's what takes place here. Uh, And this is why, you know, the Bible is so artful. All right. Verse 15 says, Jesus healed a bunch of folks. 
There's a bunch of things that he healed. Why does Matthew bring up this one right here? This man that is blind and can't speak. There's something that he's trying to say. Jesus comes. There's this man that's blind and can't speak. And the reason why he's that way is it says he's possessed by a demon. Or this is the direct work of Satan in his life. The opposer of God to make this man where he can't see and he can't speak. It's not his fault, per se. He's being driven or pushed along. He is oppressed by this power. What Jesus does, this strong-handed God, he comes in, and do you know what he does? He sets this man free from oppression. So now he can see, and he can speak physically. Then do you know what takes place next? The people around him that are spiritually blind... They start to see Christ for who he is. And then after they see him for who he is, do you know what they do? They start to talk. Could this be, could this be the son of David? Could this be the one that we're waiting on? And then do you know what you have? The Pharisees, the people that are supposed to speak on behalf of God. They try to close the people's eyes and they use their words to silence them. So what they say is, this ain't him. He's driving out demons by Satan himself. What we get is the same event and two different explanations of that event. Do you know what we call that? Conflict. The first conflict, Jesus steps back and he says, yo, I'm just going to go about my business. With this conflict, Jesus is going to spend the rest of this chapter speaking, and I want you to hear this. Uh, This God, right, uh, don't confuse mercy with passivity or softness. Uh, Sometimes mercy is uncomfortable. Genesis chapter 19, uh, there's this guy Lot, uh, And God is getting ready to rain down judgment on the town that he's in and tells him to leave. Genesis 19, verse 15 and 16 tell us this. That when Lot lingered, the spirit of God, God God had so much compassion that he grabbed him by his arm and got him out there. Jonah ran from God. And do you know what God did? God was so merciful that he swallowed him in a fish. And he sat in the belly of that fish for three days. The father of the prodigal son was so merciful that he let his son take his money and spend it all so that he would find desperation at the bottom of a pigsty. Mercy, although it's a gift, sometimes it's uncomfortable. So Jesus, this same God, hear this, He's not leaving these people behind. He's being merciful to them. But the way you're merciful to somebody that's arrogant and distrustful is you have to speak harshly to them. So Jesus is going to reserve his his harshest words, his most fearful criticisms for these people right here. And he does it in two ways, right? Verse 25 to 45 can be split up like this. Uh, 
as they charge him with being fueled by Satan to drive out Satan, Jesus says this more eloquently than I'm going to put it here. But verse 25 to 29 is him saying, y'all dumb. Verse 30 to 45 is him saying, y'all are in danger. 25 to 29. Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason... They will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. What Jesus is saying, listen, what what y'all just said is dumb. No kingdom fights against itself or else it'll be destroyed. Satan's smarter than that. Yeah, it doesn't even make sense. Y'all are just so mad at me that y'all are going to say stuff that don't make sense. Have y'all have been in a fight with somebody and what they say? Yeah, it don't even make sense. Just like, that's all that Christ says here. But at the end, what he says is, no, no, listen, there's this very real cosmic battle that's going on. And the only reason that I can set folks free It's because the spirit of God is inside me and I'm stronger than Satan. So whatever you fear, I'm stronger than that. That's what he's come to proclaim. But then he goes on and says this, look, but anybody that makes a claim like that is in danger. And I'll explain this and show how it hits home real quick. Verse 30. Anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him in this age or in the one to come. How many of y'all have ever read that and said, have I done that before? Context is important. Jesus is giving this statement, hear this, not as a condemnation, but as a warning. And he is warning the arrogant, here's what he's saying, blasphemy against the spirit of God, at least in this context, is to say this powerful work that Jesus is doing is being fueled by Satan. So what that means is the best response that you can give is not to follow Jesus, but to run from him. Yeah, does that make sense? Track there. Here's why he's saying this thing is unforgivable. Because people that have their minds set that Jesus is not the answer will never come to him for forgiveness. If you never come to him for forgiveness, do you know what you'll never experience? Forgiveness. 
What he doesn't say to this group is, y'all are done so long, it's bad. But Jesus gives this as a warning. Basically, what he's trying to say is this. Listen. Because of the nature of Jesus' work here in the world, you are either for him or against him. Either Jesus is a savior from danger or he's the source of it. What I mean by that is there is no in-between. There is no middle ground. There is no room for apathy. To be apathetic about the cause of Christ and what God does and who he says that he is, hear this, is to be against Jesus. Desmond Tutu says it like this when he talks about the injustice that went on in South Africa. He says this, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the aside of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. What Jesus is saying is that the world that we live in, there is something cosmically broken. It is under the thumb of Satan, the oppressor. Jesus has come to save the world. And anybody who does not give or spend their life wholeheartedly agreeing with Jesus on his side, gathering with him, is actually contributing to the scattering. I would imagine that there's not many of us in this room who would raise our hands and say, Jesus is being fueled by Satan. But I would imagine in a room this size, in a city like Atlanta, that there are a lot of us that are just kind of lukewarm or apathetic to the cause of Christ. To what it looks like to give him our entire life. To know that the reason why he came and got us and saved us was not so that we could live in neutrality in this world, but to come alongside him and help him gather. To remind those on the outside that there's safety, there's security, there's love in him. And I think what Jesus is trying to bring out in all of this conflict, what conflict does is it clarifies that there are two and only two choices. Either he's God or he's not. Either he saves from danger or he's the source of it. One of the great uh, pieces of pastoral advice, and it's been said by many folks uh, through the years, is that if you come to this passage about the unforgivable sin, and you have a concern in your heart that that may be you, it's a pretty clear sign that that's probably not you. He's trying to guard against this hardness of heart. 
if we remember, hear this, that the map key for us to look and interpret what God does is mercy, then we'll look at a passage like this and even this great conflict that goes on in chapter 12, and here's what we'll leave with from this. When it comes to Jesus, with Jesus, confrontation, hear this, is always about invitation, not a condemnation. When Jesus comes to confront you and I with where we are, with where we stand, it's not for you to sit here and to sit back and to be scared and say, oh my gosh, what have I done? Lord, what more do I need to do so that you won't be mad at me? That's not it at all. What he's trying to do is he's trying to confront us in order to invite you and I into this this rest that he gives. So here's what I mean by this. At the end, of all of this confrontation that he has with them, look at verse 46, and it says this. Look, he's in the midst of this great confrontation, and it says this. While he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and brother are outside standing wanting to speak to you. Jesus is in the middle of giving one of the gravest warnings that you see in all of Scripture. Somebody interrupts him, and what he doesn't say is, hey, can you hold on? I was really at the climax of this condemnation thing. What he does is they interrupt him, and it's almost as if he's like, I'm glad that you did that. Look at what he says here at the end. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Here's what he doesn't do there. He doesn't minimize the importance of family. He doesn't cast out his natural family. What he does is he uses this opportunity at the end of this confrontation not to end with condemnation, but to end with an invitation into family. What he's saying is, no, look, 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 look. Look, anybody, whoever, It's inclusive. It's not confined to race, class, gender, status, performance. Whoever, anybody, hear this, that that wants to be a part of this family of my father in heaven can be a part of it so long as they, they do the will of my father in heaven. It's not about your performance. It's not about your task. But you sit here and say, What's the, what's the will of my father? What has Jesus been prescribing? It's the same message that he said from the beginning. Matthew 4, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
He's constantly just calling people to admit and to know that when it comes to the standard that God has met, there's nobody that can ever perform well enough to be asked to come in because they've done so well. That's why Israel needed a temple. They needed some place where when they did wrong, the priest could come, offer a sacrifice for the wrong that they did so that they could be made right with God. It's the reason why they needed prophets. So when they got wayward, a prophet would come, and do you know what they would do? They would pronounce God's standard and call people to repent, much like Jonah. Jonah went to this town and called a pagan nation. He didn't even call them to repent. He just told them condemnation is coming, and the group of people repented and God saved them. It's the reason why Israel needed a king. You go to the end of Judges and it says, when there is no king or when there's nobody to lead God's people, everybody just does what's right in their own sight. In the midst of this conflict, do you know what Jesus does? Three times in Matthew 12, what he says, he says that he's greater than something. Jesus says, the temple is the place where man met with God, where a sacrifice was made when people sinned. Jesus comes and says, he's greater than the temple. What does that mean? It means that people do not have to go to a physical location any longer to meet with God. That that gap that was there in between man and God that required a continual sacrifice Jesus is going to be that sacrifice. How do we know? Because Jesus said that he's greater than Jonah. And the only sign that he's going to give is the sign of Jonah. What was the sign that he gave? Jonah, hear this, on his way to preach condemnation to a foreign town, was swallowed in a fish, stayed in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. Was as good as dead for three days. But then God spit him up on the shore, and he went, hear this, proclaimed condemnation, and the town repented. What Jesus is saying is that he hasn't come like Jonah to proclaim condemnation. He's come to proclaim forgiveness. And the sign that he's going to give is he's going to be swallowed up in death for three days. And then he's going to be spit out on the shore, not to proclaim condemnation, but forgiveness. I'll never forget, when I was post-college, I had this friend that was a Muslim. His name was Murad. Um, And it was around Easter time. And as we sit down and uh, talk, uh, we talked about faith a lot. And one thing that he said was, all right, right, John, uh, help me understand this Christianity thing. All right. I know there's a snake that talks. I know yeah, a donkey talks. I know Jonah was, was in a fish. True story. He, he said, uh, where does the bunny fit in? Where does the Easter bunny fit in? And so I told him, ah, Easter's not really about a bunny. And he said, well, what's it about? And I said, well, God came into the world as a man. He fulfilled God's law perfectly for us and he died 
the religious leaders of the day killed him. And he stayed in the grave three days. And after three days, he popped up and immediately Marah jumped in and said, what did he do when he got up? Did he kill everybody? And I'm like, no, 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 that's, that's a John Wick, all right? In the Bible, <laughs> Jesus gets up and his confrontation with humanity is not about condemnation. His confrontation was aimed at an invitation. But that invitation requires a choice. Everything has been laid out. Everything that God wanted done for his pleasure, hear this, has been done in Jesus. What you and I get to do is we can spend our lives trying to work for it or trying to run from it. But either way, none of those things are restful. Well, what we can do is that we can accept the invitation to the dinner table. Repentance is our RSVP. It's saying, Lord, I no longer want to work to try to earn your pleasure. I no longer want to live as if my role in this world is to make sure people know just about your anger. I want to accept your love, let you rule and reign, and spend the rest of my life confronting the injustices of this world, not for the purpose of condemnation, but for invitation. That's the joy of what you and I have been called into. But it is a choice. And there's only two choices. And indecision is a choice against it. Jesus offers you more than you could imagine, more than you could earn, more than you could expect. Trust him. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would give us grace and help us to trust you, to be reminded of the great and mighty things that you've done on our behalf, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be those that are motivated by love, by mercy, and that that would characterize how we interact with everybody that we come across, Lord. I pray that we would be shining examples of your mercy and grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.